Welcome to Fright School. Are you ready? Class is in session. Welcome back to Fright School Special Topic Stephen King series. Hello, Joe. Uh, hello, Joshua. C- can we change it to Two Queens Talking King? <laughs> what? Why didn't you say that before? That's great. I just came up with it. I just came up with it. You're so quick. Two Queens Talking King. Talking King. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. That'll be Patreon exclusive content right there. Yeah, we should like stop this, restart, so we can do that. It's no, like, I'm hey, kidding. we're two queens. We're two queens talking king. <laughs> two queens talking king. That is too fucking funny. Um, yeah, that is what we're doing for the uh, next couple uh mondays in march march we're dedicating to stephen king uh because and we can reveal it now because the episode is out we hooked up with the jersey ghouls and Mm -hmm. uh they are doing march madness stephen king adaptation so we watched 32 steve stephen king movies and boiled them down to the best one as decided by the group uh, I'm not individually responsible, so we'll see how it goes. And neither way to, of way us to are. It, 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 it is what it is. So way to um, own up to that, Joshua. Yeah, way to no, own up to your part in it. <laughs> no spoilers, but um, no. I mean, it, it's it, it's good in the end. Just you know, I I mean, it, it's not it's not like, oh man, I'm already in trouble now. Um, yeah, it's it was a you lot. Just have to listen. Yeah, you would definitely have to listen. But it was a ton of fun. We had a great time with uh, Marissa and Jackie over there and uh, Marissa's brother, Joe. Brother Joe. I like how that sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, we <laughs> we had a really great time. And, uh, you know, t- just talking about Stephen King, all of us, obviously, the horror, you know, fa- lifelong horror fans have a, uh, you know, if you came up in the 80s, you know, 80s and 90s, Stephen King just sort of dominated your horror pop culture. So everybody has got an opinion on him, you know? Um, well, I, I, was, I mean, even now, obviously, people still do. But definitely, Stephen King was a huge part of my childhood horror. And I think we all kind of related to that. Obviously, not you, Joe, but he has been a big part of your horror education. And now you can say you've seen like 40 movies based on his <laughs> his oeuvre. Which is kind of amazing I, I that he's got I so much to work. It. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, but anyway, so you can listen to those episodes, Jersey Ghouls. They're on, you know, all the things wherever you can find us. You can easily find the Jersey Ghouls. We will also be linking the um, episodes in our description, so make sure you check there. Um, you know, just a general, I guess, reminder: always check the notes. There's lots of cool stuff. We put neat papers in there. Uh, you know, academic looks at horror, reviews of horror films, news. Um, you know, all kinds of stuff. So. So, so check, read the notes, people. <laughs> Joshua, are you drinking a chilled white wine? I am having some white wine. Yes, it is chilled. <laughs> I figured I was um, up early. I My day started really early. I got up because um, I went to bed kind of early. So I got up and I started, I was cooking because I wanted to make... Uh, 
I wanted to make this slow cooker turkey chili that takes like eight hours to do. So I wanted to get up early and like Mm -hmm. prep all that took a lot of cutting and, you know, opening of things and all of that. And then I also made a uh, turkey and garbanzo bean spinach soup. Um, Turkey, Ooh. ground turkey was on sale, as you can hear. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm like, did you have Thanksgiving and your yeah. <laughs> leftovers? Or? Uh, yeah, no, we picked up a ton of ground turkey. So um, we're, I made I made a couple things. And then what else? I made something else. Um, oh, I've been really into making smoothies in the morning. So I got up. My day started really early. And then we were watching the Barefoot Contessa. I, I was talking about this. If you're a friend of mine on Facebook or, you know, follow me otherwise. Um, you know, I was complaining as I like to do about, about Ina Garten. Uh, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to open some wine cause I can, it's not too early really while we're recording. <laughs> it's not too early for a nice glass of white wine. Uh, so that's what I'm doing just to get through this, uh, another episode with you, Joe. Uh, can I ask what kind of smoothies that you you are? That was not uh, nice. Um, you're making. I'm not a nice person. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of smoothies are you making in the morning? Um, different ones. I'm trying to find different recipes. The problem is, like online, there's like five billion recipes, you know. So I am trying to look for some good ones. So last week, pretty much every day, I made like these mixed berries with like yogurt and banana. Uh, this morning I did one that was like spinach, kale, avocado, banana, chia, uh, almond milk. Super yummy with some ice. So that was Mm. breakfast. Um, a really green smoothie. I'm trying to figure out ways. I'm trying to be like a grown up and try to find more ways to get my daily fiber. So hold on vamp a little bit. I need to get a book to show you. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. But anyway, so dear listener, if you're not aware, fiber is very important. We need like 25 to 30 grams of it a day. And most of us get like 15 or 16. So eat your fiber, find it, figure it out. So simple green smoothies. Joe showing me this book. So, so this is a book that my Jimmy can book. uh, Introduce yes, introduce me to. Um, I bought myself a um, a Nutribullet, so I too could also make myself some smoothies because I like you. Um, am in my thirties, um, on the front half, somewhere How in the back nine. How dare you? <laughs> 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 and um, I, I was like, you know, I, I would, I would love it, and. He makes these smoothies from from this that have um, that are really good for like giving you energy in the morning, nice. and coupled with a good night's sleep, I'm like, wow, this is really good. Sugar is a little high, but it's all natural sugars, um, but so good, and it's kale. Um, I had to stop making them though because somehow the um, no matter what I did, um, I'd have one, and then it would not make me feel good like uh, later i don't know if maybe there's you know maybe something's going on that i need to get checked but maybe this isn't a medical um, podcast <laughs> right exactly um also they say like people can um if you're not used to having the amount of fiber you're supposed to have every day it can make you feel really bad you know uh, i can cause all kinds of problems while your body's like absorbing or like readjusting to it so yeah, also be careful, I guess. But um, yeah, we, we need we need uh, to have better diets in general. Uh, so 
we're just trying our best. Uh, you know, we cook a lot at home and I think we're pretty health minded, but we're also, you know, a couple of queers who are rather sedentary, <laughs> and, you know, not interested in trying to impress anybody. So, you know, we, we do a lot of sitting around and, uh, yeah. so we've got to be better. We're just trying to be better about, um, you know, eating better things. And, you know, like yesterday we were like, there's nothing, we don't really want to go anywhere necessarily, but we really should get out of the fucking house and just go walking around. And so we did that yesterday and it was really nice and I did feel good. And the rest of the day I felt pretty good. So, which sucks. Doesn't that suck when like you do something physical (laughs) and you're like, wow, I actually feel good. Like my brain fog cleared and (laughs) (laughs) It's sad. Did, did the neighborhood children like run from you when they saw you? Did any mm. did people start closing we their doors? Or we like drove somewhere. A- we did have to go do some <laughs> shopping. And then okay. we were just like, well, while we're at it, let's go walk. We wanted to like go, you know, just walking through that, like the outdoor mall and stuff like that. And so did you get a like your black par- lace parasol and you know, walk slowly as if a harbinger of someone's death, like a banshee? Yeah, definitely. Like, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did some howling from the shadows. Um, it was fun. <laughs> Irish people all of a sudden call up all their family members trying to figure yep. out who's going to die. Got yep. it. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, but anyway, so, gosh, you know, we are always so fascinating to listen to, I think, for for our dear listener. They're just sitting here like, this is oh, amazing. <laughs> So let's get to some horror stuff. So yes, we we were talking right before we started film, uh, recording, filming. Listen to me, recording. Um, that we did finally finish um, "Chilling Adventures of Sabrina," aka Chaos, which is exactly what that last freaking <laughs> season was. Mess the chilling messes of Sabrina. Oh my gosh, it was such a disaster. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, super annoying. We were kind of like at the end of it. Cause usually it's like, well, we, at least we watched it. We saw the whole thing, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But we both were kind of like, we didn't need to waste time. We could have watched something else. We could have been devoting time to this Avengers watch. We're trying to, to do, uh, so we can watch WandaVision. Um, so yeah, I was disappointed. What about you? Um, I, I hated the end of, I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I was like, there's no point in having it end this way. It just seemed like I, I was, I, part of me is, wants to like interview them and be like, well, we had restrictions because of coronavirus. I, right. I really want to blame it on the coronavirus um, because I refuse to believe that that's what they came up with <laughs> in the before time as this is the ending. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought overall, I thought the season, I thought there were some really good gems in this particular season. Um, I started to get more annoyed. I started to get more annoyed with Sabrina as it went on because Sabrina started to become like a Piper from Orange is the New Black for me. And I stopped watching Orange is the New Black because I hated the main character so much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, like, it was it was fine, but like it didn't need to end that way. And it was just it, it had so much promise and there was a lot that they could really do with it and they just yeah i mean and you're absolutely right covid might have played a part i don't know i don't know what their production dates were on this um you know but it just yeah i don't know it was just a letdown and you know and i think the other part of it for me 
And this is probably, you know, again, I don't know, like Chilling Adventures of Sabrina probably just isn't for me. You know, that's fine. It, it, yeah. You know, maybe I'm not like the target audience of it. But listening to them go on and on about being 16, 17 years old and like this, I, I love you and I want to love you for the rest of my life and all this stuff, like the, their torment over there, like was so annoying to me because I'm like, you people are 16, 17 years old. You're a fucking witch who might live for hundreds of years. Do you really want to be mm-hmm. tied to this one fucking dude? Like what all of like the kind of that sexual ambiguity and, and, um, you know, destruction, not destruction, but like the untethered morals in like the first season, first and second season where they, you know, like, like I've, I've complained about before. I felt Ambrose, his queerness was totally erased for the rest of the, uh, mm-hmm. of the, of the, uh, of the series. Um, you know, you had like these sort of, I don't know, just sexually fluid sorts of characters or conversations that necessarily weren't tied to like, patriarchal or heteronormative stuff there was just i don't know it was kind of exciting to to kind of expand on that idea a little bit more and not have just another high school drama about teenagers who think they're really going to be in love forever but you know in a couple years their temporal lobes are going to go you know uh, are going to totally change (laughs) you know and i'm only saying that because i was with somebody in high school you know from the time we were like 17 or 18 to about 23 when we both just suddenly our brains just went what <laughs> you know and we, we are not compatible and um yeah. well i guess i was like more like 22 anyways not the point the point is is like just some of that kind of stuff the i don't know what you call it like i mean the soapiness of it the drama of it it's like oh my gosh yeah. you're gonna live for hundreds of years you've got magical powers you're in hell one day you're you know you're doing something else the next you're going to this other realm you're i'm mean, it's just like why are you so hung up on this fucking boy? Ugh, boy. Also, the like Theo and Robin Goodfellow of it all, mm. like that was intro. I that story was cool, but it just kind of fell. It kind of well, like you know, Robin goes, like Robin leaves the mortal realm and then like comes back. Like it was like if this was maybe you know, like a regular watch of like week to week watching, but this is a fuck like you knew this was going to be bingeable. So it's like, you couldn't give him like a surprise thing at the end. Like it was like, he left and now he's back. (laughs) No, they tried to shove a lot in, which we've said, you know, when I first started watching it at the beginning, it felt like, you know, all of true blood pushed into, you know, a few episodes. Um, Also, it's like the world is falling apart. You know, the world is falling apart. The Eldritch terrors, this whole thing, everything's folding in on itself. But you know what we definitely have time for is a battle of the bands. While we (laughs) absolutely (laughs) sing songs that we have no business, really. You know, it was just like so frustrating. The insanity of it all. Um, I mean, I get it. Like I get in the context of the story, but it's just it could have been better. It could have been just better writing. I was just very disappointed all together. You know, and again, maybe I'm just not. Maybe I'm not the true audience for it. I love the comics that they were based on. They were dark and weird. And I just wanted to see that show. And I wanted to see them explore more. You know, I just got very bored quickly by, you know, they set up all this kind of cool. I really, truly thought feminist kind of perspectives on on the devil and hell and witchcraft that quickly just became this sort of, you know, Catholicism where everybody's just dressed in black. (laughs) You know, I don't know. True. It was very disappointing. I think as far as like, 
the the I forget what season it was. Maybe it was the third season. It's whatever season where like you know their magic is leaving them because they've imprisoned the Dark Lord, right? <laughs> And they're trying to figure out that like where their next source of magic is, which which is like also something that happens on the on the, on the magicians, which I watched. It's like wow, magic shows really are concerned with like what happens when magic leaves. Right. Um, and I actually really liked that, like exploring the inner cosmology of like where they get their power. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Like that, I really appreciate, and think that's what made like that season, probably my favorite season with the pagans and all of that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, could have ended there in my opinion, but whatever. Yeah, no, it's a bummer. So, you know, whatever. Um, on the flip side, because we've got a new show starting with, uh, Clarice, uh, we are enjoying that. You know, so we'll see how that goes. And if it, you know, tanks again, Jeffrey and I, we don't watch. We basically don't watch anything on like ABC, NBC, CBS. So I know there's a lot of criticism out there about Clarice and people seem to not like it. But like we're watching it. Maybe we just aren't. Maybe we haven't seen a million of those kinds of shows. So maybe it just feels maybe we're just ignorant of like. Mm -hmm the um the procedural drama of it all uh but we don't watch you know well i yeah i can't think of anything else that we really watch i mean we watch stuff on like cbs access but it's not you know anyways the point is we are enjoying that so far we are not totally caught up we just watched the third episode i think we'll watch the fourth episode today um, but I'm I, I'm enjoying it. I really want to hear I really want to hear your opinions about the fourth episode because um, in the fourth episode, Ardelia has a really great storyline. Oh, good! And finally, I know I more of her. Like you know, more 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 Ardelia for sure. And I really I like it. And part of me is like, okay, that seems. I you know what? I'm not even going to go there because I want you to have be untainted by my thoughts about it, but we need to have that conversation. We need to have that conversation next week about it because I had many feelings about Ardelia's storyline. All right. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, more of her because they promised that they weren't going, that they were going to grow that character and give her more, you know, more to do and more reason to exist, you know, than just be Clarice's like, you know, uh, avenue to whatever, to housing, to a soundboard to whatever you know uh so yeah i'm very i'm very interested in seeing more of her um speaking of never ending shows oh my gosh drag race there are still eight queens left the show's been on for seven months (laughs) it feels um we just had snatch game i didn't even watch the documentary thing because i'm like we all we've all been living what was the point? We've all been living in this. I We know. We're well aware. So I don't care. I'm not watching this. We started it thinking it was a new episode. And I was like, what the fuck is this? So we turned it off and we watched the first episode of the UK Drag Race. But we haven't watched any more of it since. So I need to go back because I know that's like seven or eight episodes in. I... I, I... When I saw they were doing that documentary, I and they were like, you know, we're one of the first productions to come back at, like during COVID, and I was like, yeah, because you're trying to exploit. <laughs> this is RuPaul's exploitation race, um, right? At this point, and so <laughs> I'm like, that I wouldn't brag about that. We're the first one to come back. I'm like, yeah, because you're the most fucking thirsty. Um, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> but like, oh, uh, tell me. 
our, our, our dear friend Daniel of, you know, of alien and aliens of uh, yes. the plural and the singular. Hello, he, he, his comment on Facebook about like, you know, there were some crimes committed <laughs> during a snatch game. And I watched it and I was like, okay, yes, there were definitely some things that were bad, but like, <laughs> I thought it was kind of on par with how snatch game could like could eventually end out. What did you think? Yeah, I I mean, it wasn't any different than any other season. There's always the ones that are awesome, you know, and they were, you know, rewarded. Uh, Gottmik clearly deserved to win. Her Paris Hilton was bonkers. I mean, that was great, Um, you know, and she's funny and, you know, could play off of Rue. Uh, Harriet Tubman was a massive risk. There's always that one that's a massive risk that pays off. Um, I'm trying to think who else was really good. Uh, Mary Queen of Scots, another one. Kind of like it reminded me of um, when Ben de la Creme did Maggie Smith, Dame Maggie Smith. Uh-huh. You know, so it kind of really mm-hmm. relied on like the humor of an accent and, you know, sort of the anachronistic, you know, kind of characteristics and kind of putting that person in this situation. So, you know, those were funny. Um, I felt like Octavia saw Tabitha Brown somewhere, but did not ever really watch any of her videos or something. It just totally, I'm Mm -hmm. like, that's not really like, I mean, there are just, there are just certain catchphrases and things to say, you know? So I don't know. I mean, yeah, of course there were definitely ones that I think should repologize hashtag repologize. Um, (laughs) to, to the celebrities they were impersonating, but that's every season. It wasn't any different. I think again, and we, I think we've talked about this in the past because, you know, we've been doing this show now for several years. Um, and I think, I think ever since we started, there's been like 53 seasons of drag race since. Uh, so <laughs> it feels like it at least, um, you know, snatch game. It, it's just one of those things. Everybody knows it's coming, you know, everybody, you know, there's mm-hmm. zero reason to be unprepared. You know, you should have be practicing that with people. Um, you know, I picked a character. Hey, uh, you know, let's pull some old, you know, just go through drag race. Like look at the old um, clips and answer those questions. Like practice that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Like be ready. And the fact that they're still not after 13 seasons and there's always, I'm not an actor. I'm not a comedy queen. I'm not this. I'm not that. Which, I mean, I know it didn't really happen this time around, but there's always the queen that complains about that. It's like, there's no excuse. Snatch Game is coming. Mm-hmm. Come prepared. Come with a practiced, you know, nailed character. I don't understand. I don't understand how they still don't do that. Just like I don't understand why they, you know, if I know I'm getting on Drag Race, you probably have a few months to prepare, I imagine. Yeah. I, I don't actually know. But even if you are going to apply, Go take a sewing class. Know how to make two or three garments, basic garments, you know, because you know you're going to have to. I just don't get it. I don't understand um, the queens that just are completely unprepared. Uh, But, of course, I'm not in their role. Uh, You know, I got Tina Burner's whole thing about, like, well, it's one thing to host a club and to be laughing and kikiing with everybody. And it's a different thing to be, like, ask questions and expect it to be funny. Hey, 100%. I get that. Practice it then if you don't think you're good at it. Watch old episodes, you know, think about who you'd be. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you have to do some homework. I mean, Mm -hmm. like 
I actually, like, I legit prepared for being on the weakest link. Like, I went and I found, like, in the deepest, darkest corners of the internet where they still exist, the original, the episodes from that first season of the of the American version, like, 20 years ago, because I wanted to see, okay, like, it's going to be different because there's no live audience, but, like, what was it like then? What kind of questions? And just, yeah. you know, to gain some sort of, like understanding and strategy like you it, yeah the whole coming not prepared uh and not being able to sew and that's like a big thing when they get there i'm like yeah. you knew where you were going you've seen people struggle like there have been queens that yes didn't know how to sew and made it pretty far of course. but they also were like crafty and resourceful right um if you know you're not those things you got to yeah. prepare you know and most anybody i mean the machines are there you know at least know how to thread a bobbin and know how to make you know one thing because if it's a dress okay fine make a short make it long whatever as long as it works you know like just know at least one pattern you know, Bianca you can, Rio did it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. She won with the same freaking dress as she'll tell you when people are like, Oh, you wore the same dress every time. And she's like, yeah. And I fucking won. So suck it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? So yeah, I just, I just don't understand it. Um, do you know if you were on drag race, who your character would be? Oh, see, I, I, I've always kind of said that I would want to take a risk and do like the full judges panel, like do quick changes and have the judges panel be different, different things or something meta like that. Because I loved, like, when I think about my favorite characters, like I like Violet Tchotchke as Alyssa Edwards. I like, um, Sharon Needles as Miss Michelle Visage, like right. all of these that are really, they're really meta, but like, they're also very, like, they're very sharp and very quick. Um, so something along those lines, uh, yeah. maybe be, I mean, <laughs> like I'll be Lucian and, you know, just pretend to drink Clorox and, you know, be really bad. <laughs> they probably won't allow that, but, um, but yeah, it was just, it, what would you be? <laughs> Have you just, uh, do you know what you would be? Do you <laughs> even think you'd make it that far? <laughs> Um, well, I think I maybe could, I, it depends. I mean, I'm not a drag queen. I mean, I guess if I was, I, I have no idea. Um, but give, the, the, the fantasy is we have, you know, we've made yeah. it far enough to get on, <laughs> uh, to get on snatch game. I'm not, I think that there's like a rule, like you can't play characters, which is too bad because I, number one, I would do Elvira. Um, cause I think I could mm, do her really mm-hmm. funny and I could do it well, you know, enough to, to be campy and silly and you know um but i think that you can't do they have to be like real people right isn't that the rule well i mean i i don't know about that because um kimmy (laughs) jong-un was a character like kimchi did like that but but they made that up themselves I mean, you can't do yeah, yeah. copyrighted characters. That's Someone why people do Rue McClanahan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't do Blanche Devereaux. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Totally so, get that because they, yeah. Which <laughs> Elliot deserved to go home. Like, yeah, I was so girl, glad to see her go. Oh my gosh. Bye. Sorry. Go. Oh my gosh. How so dare, over. how dare you do a golden girls theme? Like, you know what I mean? Like Rue McClanahan, 
And just because, like, oh, my fiance watches it every, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you, James, no, James you loves know. Uh, the Foo Fighters, but I wouldn't fucking do Dave Grohl, like, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. So that, so anyway, so it goes back to so what I, what I was gonna say is like, yeah, because I probably couldn't do Elvira because she's like a copyrighted character. I would probably, I would probably do like boy drag of some sort and do like Rob Zombie or. Um, yes. you know, somebody like that, maybe Charles Manson, like play with like, you know, kind of that sort of thing. If, you know, if they let you get away with it. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, I would probably do something like that then. Um, you know, but you could do Jodie Foster and then oh, just be Clarice. <laughs> right. And just be Clarice. Cause that's kind of how they get away with it is, you know, they, yeah. they're, they're the person, but kind of the character. That's what always happens with Rue McClanahan. Everybody always plays her like a, you know, they play her like Blanche Devereaux and like Rue McClanahan yeah. most likely was not like that in real person. I actually have no idea. Um, but anyways, oh my gosh, we've been talking for forever already. Uh, <laughs> we got to get to the actual meat of our, of our episode. Uh, so anyways, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I, I still don't really know who I think is going to win. It's still very far out. I love Utica. I'm sad to see her kind of tanking the last few episodes. Um, so we'll see where that goes. Uh, otherwise, <sighs> God, who else is, who else is Utica on the show? Utica is maxing. Utica is like max in, mm-hmm. in, that was like, I was like, Oh, she is very much yeah. like, this is funny to me. And I'm like, yeah, but like you're dealing with RuPaul who yeah. is like the new queen of mass appeal. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, got milk, know. obviously got Mick obviously is, is definitely oh, my yeah. top right now. Um, I just, I, I think that, you know, her drag is incredible. So yeah, I'm very loving. It could be anyone for me at this point. Like the people who are there, like it makes sense that they're there and it'll be just the littlest things every, like the next couple weeks. Oh, I mean for the next 10 years, it'll be the littlest things as we (laughs) (laughs) send them all home. Yeah. Alrighty, well, that was uh, Drag Race Minute. Uh, <laughs> um, all right, so we're going to take a roll, uh, quick break, and we're going to be back to discuss uh, Stephen King's uh, Silver Bullet. Meanwhile, in New Jersey... So, Marissa, what talking points do you want to hit on in this week's episode? Well, Jackie, let's talk about how the film addresses the patriarchy. Ooh, and representation of marginalized people. Ooh, ooh, and even philosophical ramifications of good versus evil and We can point out the triangle boobs, talk about the blood splatter, and oh, the practical effects. (sighs) Um, and also the male gaze? My gaze at the males. Hi-oh! From feminism to fangirling, the Jersey Ghouls cover all the bases of horror from a woman's perspective. New episodes are uploaded every other Sunday. Just search Jersey Ghouls to find us on social media and your favorite podcasting app. All right, welcome back uh, to Two Queens Talking King. (laughs) That's what we're going to do from now on now. Um, No. Uh, Yeah, so we are doing a deep dive into Stephen King this month with uh, looking at a few of his films. And today we are talking about uh, werewolves in the work of Stephen King. So we are doing Silver Bullet. Uh, It is uh, 1980. 
five, based on the 1983, I don't know what you want to call it. It's like a novella. It's like a graphic novel, comic. It's, you know, a mix, uh, Cycle of the Werewolf. And we've got Gary Busey. Oh my gosh. That was one of my notes was just Gary Busey. (laughs) There he is. Being Gary Busey. (laughs) Yes. Lots of Gary Busey. Uh, Corey Haim is in here. Uh, those are the, like the names I immediately recognize, um, you know, watching it, I'm like, I don't really know who any of these other people are, but you know, we still have, we got Everett McGill as Reverend Lowe and, uh, spoiler alert, the werewolf, uh, Megan follows as, uh, Corey Haim's, uh, character's name's Marty. So Jane Coslaw, which in this, in the film version, it's like her memory. She's narrating this as an older person looking back on this summer or this time when the werewolf came to town. And yeah, so that's what the movie is about. You know, a werewolf in small town America killing folks. (laughs) What did, uh, what did you think Joe of this um, cult classic? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do love anything with Corey Haim. Uh, by far one of my favorite of the Haim sisters. Um, Chaim. The, <laughs> the Chaim sisters, um, as they say. Uh, no, I just, that was a joke that fell flat just now. I can hear you not, li- you can hear you not laughing, listener. Um, yeah. I thought it was fun. Like, I, it was very much He's like. He's also dead, Joe. So, I, I great forget respect. which one of, <laughs> forget which one of them is dead. Um <laughs> them meaning of the Corys, right. uh, which one is the dead one. Um, so here's the thing. It was very like Goonies. And I say that as someone who is like, never watched the Goonies. Um, it was very like eighties um, kids kind of movie, uh, you know, caper trying to figure out what's going on in their, you know, the secrets of their small town, which, you know, as we, as you have elucidated for us uh, last week, that is a king trope of you know the strangeness in a strange town, strangeness in a small town. Um, right. But I mean, it was fun. It was was it something that like you know I, I didn't rewatch it for this because I just re- I just revisited my notes um, because I was like I don't want to do that to myself again, so I probably wouldn't rewatch it. But it was like fun and definitely not it was not what I expected when I watched it, which for me is a good thing. Cause if, you know, with horror being what it is and being like, so clockable sometimes I think that this one was just really, ah, I get it. And then once you, once I understood what was happening, then it was all kind of, you know, smooth sailing downhill the rest from there. So yeah, it was fun. I, I, I'm curious to see what you're going to say about it because I think it was exactly that. Like, I think it's just a fun movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, nothing is ever just a fun horror movie on Fright School, Joe. We are cl- analyzing well, cultural anxiety. Uh, we are getting to the very roots of American fears and 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 global fears on occasion, um, though probably not enough. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to solve that soon with some upcoming um, uh, series. But uh, 
Not the please listen right if you would like us to ruin this, you know, very simple movie about a boy in a wheelchair and werewolves. Which, that, like, that in and of itself, the fact that, like, he's a boy in a wheelchair and the wheelchair is the silver bullet. Like... <laughs> Uh, for I mean, the wheelchair is a silver bullet for most of the movie until they actually get like a real silver bullet. Like that, that was just like bonkers. Like that seemed very. It just was super campy for me. Um, <laughs> that, that that the the name of the wheelchair was the silver it, like bullet. It, like oh we get it like it's a werewolf movie that's why it's called Silver Bullet. But like to have him be like to have this you know I think Corey Haim is an able bodied person. Um, <laughs> he you know to have him be this like boy in a wheelchair and to also have like the wheelchair be this like very strange like somehow rope like motorcycle like super motorized type of deal um throughout the film that that was just what an interesting (laughs) and interesting and not in the good way choice (laughs) to have all of that well i mean you kind of jumped me a little ahead of where I wanted to start, but that's okay. Let's just go ahead and dive into that because that is sort of um, one of the things to discuss within this film and then beyond that in the larger scope of the work of Stephen King. So, another, you know, one of the tropes of Stephen King's work is often to have people that have some sort of disability you know, there, 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 there's a, a character. There's always like a character, not always, but in a lot of his stories, there's a character with some sort of disability, you know? So in this film, it's, um, you know, Corey Haim's character, um, uh, Marty. I don't know why I was like reaching for that. Marty, uh, is in a wheelchair. Uh, obviously the new, uh, well, the stand, but, the new version of it is kind of renewed interest in these conversations because they hired an actor who is not deaf to play Nick Andros in the stand. And obviously Rob Lowe, is it Rob Lowe that played him in the, I think it was Rob Lowe that played um, Nick in the Mm -hmm. nineties version also is not a deaf person. Um, You know, so there was kind of renewed interest in discussing the ways that people with disabilities are portrayed in the work of Stephen King. Tom Cullen, obviously, somebody who's shown with like some sort of mental um, disability, uh, which he, you know, tells everybody several times in the in the new in the new version. But there's something also magical about him, you know, and so there's this term. I found. Uh, So this woman, Jennifer Sebring, wrote this uh, piece for the Mighty called I'm Not a Super Crip, and that's okay. And so the idea is that, um, you know, this concept of having some sort of compensatory characteristic to make up my... Uh, to make up for my illnesses makes me uneasy, and this is that thing. So Super Crip uh, is, you know, this idea that... um, so it's a concept of a person with a disability or other related illness having to have some extraordinary ability to compensate for their disability. Uh, the super crip represents overachieving, overdetermined self-infreakment that distracts from the lived daily reality of most disabled people. Uh, and her response is, we do not always look like the heroes you want us to be. And so I'm sure we've seen, uh, I'm sure you've seen, 
in the last few years, the rise of this uh, concept of like inspiration porn, mm-hmm. you know, and so that you and you see it on Facebook all the time. You see it on social media. You see it in the news. You know, people either going out of their way to help some disabled person, you know, or some person with disabilities uh, or some sort of disability, you know, either do something or achieve something or some high school. Oh, look at us. We, you know, crowned this person uh, with, uh, you know, fill in you know, mental disability, physical disability. We made them prom queen or prom king. Um, you know, putting like some sort of spotlight, you know, on mm-hmm. either our mm-hmm. own involvement or just to kind of make us feel good about ourselves uh, as like as a species, as a people, as a town, as a state, as a whatever. Um, Matt Fraser talked about this with doing uh asylum or i mean not asylum freak show american horror story freak show so the 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 man who played uh the seal boy you know kind of famously accosted the writers like you know why aren't you asking us for our opinions uh you know you and they sort of worked into the story where he um i think he tells off uh jimmy or somebody about looking the way that they do And, Mm -hmm. you know, that he, you know, at the end of the day, Evan Peters gets to take off his hands and go home. But a lot of the the majority of the actors that they hired to play the quote unquote freaks were people really living with these sorts of physical quote unquote handicaps or, or disabilities. And nobody was asking them about their real experience traversing a world not designed for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so within the work, within horror, within other, uh, you know, fantasy elements, then that, again, that, we see how disability becomes this thing where it's like, let's not talk about the disability because you're psychic or you're um, powerful in other ways. And that allows us not to see that there's something quote wrong with you. Yeah. Um, And so like daredevil in the MCU. Right. Exactly. You know, that, that, that's sort of a, a, sort of a, a place to, you know, derive inspiration from or to derive like, you know, oh, we've got to find a way to like, again, we've talked about this with queerness, you know, of like our goal in seeking respect and with within the laws of the land has is not about wanting to be seen the same as straight people. Women don't want, you know, equality because they want you to think that they're men you know, Mm -hmm. or, or they don't, they're not fighting to subjugate men either. That's not the conversation with feminism. Um, you know, so it's this idea that like, you know, not everybody with this sort of, well, it just comes back to everything that we've talked about is no, no one is a monolith, you know? Mm -hmm. So some people may have ideas that they wish they could do this or this or that, but not everybody does. And that that's okay. And that they don't need, like she is saying, I don't need to be, I don't need you to look at me as some kind of heroic figure, you know, traversing life every day with this disability that I'm somehow getting over, you know, or to make you feel good or guilty about your, you know, place. So anyways, (laughs) so much to discuss here. So I was looking at this disability studies quarterly and there's this horrible heroes liberating alternative visions of disability and horror. 
And this is pretty uh, cool paper that I will link in the in the bottom of the uh, of the episode. Because this person is sort of looking at how horror, as we've discussed, you know, I claim horror, despite its frequent abuse of disability, has significant potential to structure alternative encounters with and visions of disability. And so the the paper looks at the work of Tim Burton and Stephen King, um, looking at, uh, let's see... um, Often horror is not the monstrous or disabled bodies that our heroes at times inhabit. Instead, what is horrifying is society and its rigid cruelty. Exclusion, cruelty, normalization are posed as threat and elicit audience disidentification. The social world with its cultural categories through various visual devices and strategies is shown as contrived or problematic. So to your point earlier about so the the wheelchair like the silver bullet like the uncle uh, so you know realizes there's more to Marty than him just not being able to walk and he builds Marty the silver bullet motorized wheelchair which is exciting dangerous and objectionable and built almost like a motorcycle and Marty you know eventually finds out you know about the werewolf is you know stalking the town it's Marty who blows up the firecracker in his face and Mm -hmm. disfigures the werewolf in such a way that can help identify him. Um, Although he does send those letters advising him to kill himself. (laughs) We should just tell him to go kill himself. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I, um, this also, again, horror audiences ideally identifies with protagonists and is horrified by what those characters find horrifying, you know, and there are moments that that's sort of what the interesting thing is. So again, it's it it becomes a sort of mix so is having a disability this like horrifying thing to people watching you know or we go through the world and we think you know what is it there but for fortune go i there but for the grace of god go i <laughs> that's yeah i think that is what people say but i like to say fortune no. um <laughs> uh, yeah. because you know <laughs> so like is that the horror or is it the way that people are treated, you know? And so we can, if you read cycle of the werewolf, which I actually reread this morning because it's only, it's like the book itself is like 120 some pages, but a lot of it's illustration. So it's only 53 pages of actual words. (laughs) So I reread it this morning. And what's interesting is that, you know, because it's a book, you can be in people's heads. And so Marty is a character. You're like his father, in the in the novella, I guess I should call it, is a coach. So he coaches at the local school. Uh, you know, like he does gym and whatnot. And so all of these kids are like up and running and doing things. And in his own head, he thinks about like he's uncomfortable by his son looking at him. Uh, he goes to check on him in bed, and he's uncomfortable like touching his legs, which are you know not developed. Um, you know, his mother has these thoughts, you know, there's all these like really unkind thoughts about him from his family. And then also explicitly, you know, his sister's very rude, you know, and calls him a cripple a lot. And, you know, she's voices being angry with him because he gets what he wants because he's a cripple. Um, you know, as if he wouldn't deserve things otherwise, you know, to be cared for Mm -hmm. and to be loved and to, you know, um, it's quite a bit of a contention, uh, when so the book's a little different 
And I actually really like the way Stephen King. So it's set up. Um, what I read was originally it was planned to be a calendar. So mm. it's set up January through December. Those are the chapters. Um, and it was supposed to be paired with this guy, Bernie Wrightson. It's his illustration. So they were going to do a calendar with these sort of werewolf illustrations. And Stephen King was going to write a little blurb for each month. And it just got out of hand, it, you know. And so he decided to kind of release it in this sort of graphic novel type form. It's not, I mean, that's not correct either <laughs> like i mean it is prose but with you can kind of see and if our listener you know if you look up the book yeah there's you know, prose with some pictures yeah yeah there's there's a lot of a lot of really cool illustrations in it um you know but so it's situated each month so a lot of times uh, i love stephen king's like any dedicated moon watcher this is the afterword will know that regardless of the year i have taken a few I've taken a good many liberties with the lunar cycle, usually to take advantage of days, Valentine's, July 4th, etc., which mark certain months in our minds. To those readers who feel that I didn't know any better, I assert that I did, but the temptation was simply too great to resist. <laughs> so a lot of times they, with in the novel, the full moon just happens to continue to follow fall on like a holiday. And so July 4th is one of those holidays and Marty really looks forward to it. He loves the fireworks. It's exciting to him. And everybody's really mean to him when it gets canceled because people are getting murdered, which obviously, yes, you know, if people are getting murdered every full moon, maybe you want to take a step back. Um, just like people, uh, you know, with COVID, you know, this whole situation, maybe you don't want to go rushing out to restaurants and whatnot, but who are we to judge? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyway, so again, there's this sort of like, you know, you wonder horror is this extreme situation, uh, you know, but you look out into the world and again, it is very complicated. If you're a person who needs to use a wheelchair, regardless of why uh, it's hard to, to maneuver around. There's a lot to be considered that is not naturally built into society. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there's in within, within the film version, the, um, Oh God, that guy, the dad who's like, we should just like electrocute all of the, these people to save money. Mm -hmm. What was his name? God, he was horrible. Anyways, he's like the girl, you know, the little girl's father. And he makes that comment. It's like, there's lots of people that really believe that way. Um, You know, and you think about like our history with how we have traditionally, historically, I mean, treated people with, um, you know, any sort of deviation from what we consider normal. Typically in science, that's able-bodied white man. (laughs) Mm-hmm. you know it's um mm-hmm. it, you know it's just not it's easy to kind of see the world from this perspective you know i i, I think of anything and rereading the novel today it's like i really do think you leave it not feeling bad for marty because of his supposed disability but because like everybody's really unkind to <laughs> thinking about him you know yeah. and it, it is yeah. that you know, is that like the real horror of the world? You know, it's not that, you know, when people are like, oh my gosh, you know, um, it must be terrible to live this kind of life. It's like, well, yeah, when you go around thinking that and you make the whole world impossible for me to navigate as if I should Mm -hmm. feel bad constantly, you know? 
I don't know. Thoughts on that? There, uh, there, uh, there's a lot. There's a whole conversation about like abject objection in horror. This this paper is really cool. Um, so I'm I'm gonna definitely link it because I recommend people read it. Um, you know, with disability as like a social construction. You know, I think is very fascinating. Um, but we probably should move on to the next topic. Um, which is, <laughs> so here we get a little bit more abstract because, you know, disability is very clearly on display. <laughs> it's a werewolf movie as well. Although I was kind of wondering in the book, he, the werewolf has his own chapters as well. You know, there are things from his perspective where he's like, I wasn't a werewolf my whole life. I became one somehow. I think it has to do with these flowers I took from a cemetery and brought back to the church, which turned black. And then he became a werewolf is what he thinks, but there's no real clear distinction. So um, again, we've looked at werewolves, you know, we did a whole series on werewolf mythology. You know, you get bit by a werewolf or you get cursed to become a werewolf or you're born a werewolf. But this guy uh, thinks it has to do with some flowers, I guess, wolf's bane or, you know, something that he, again, he says he picked at, at a cemetery and tried to bring home. Uh, and he also isn't like aware, like it takes him a while to become aware that he's the werewolf. You know, he has these dreams where his congregation turns into a pack of wolves, but again, the way they kind of comes early. So you think maybe it's just this, uh, preacher having these stress dreams about his Mm -hmm. congregation and these people that he loves and cares about, or, you know, one of them is harboring a monster, but then as the, as the book goes along, he realizes it's, it's him. And then he has to like, come to terms with that. Um, and as we see, instead of killing himself decides to like make that okay with God. Cause he's going after bad people, quote unquote, <laughs> including mm-hmm. children. But what I do think is interesting culturally, he's a werewolf Dexter. <laughs> right. Exactly. But again, he kills like the, <laughs> the child as well. So it, it kind of falls apart a little bit. You know, there is the thing of like, Oh, you're doing it for fun as well. Um, you're, you're enjoying killing. Um, but in, I do think it was night. I think it was like around 1985, the first cases of like the Catholic church abuse scandal had broken. And like the first priest was like convicted, I think in 85, which kind of contextualizes this whole film in that time period. And so I was just, I was kind of thinking about that, like, you know, with like, cultural anthropology (laughs) you know when you look back at that time and you Mm -hmm. have this film about like a small town you know tight-knit something is murdering people is harming people and then it turns out to be the local reverend who has like the i i feel he reads very catholic I know the book makes a very clear distinction. The book's like, oh, the the reason that it takes Marty a while to figure him out is that they go to a Catholic church outside of town. So he didn't get a chance to really interact with Reverend Reverend Lowe to see in those months and months after July 4th when he injures him with the the firecracker. He didn't Mm -hmm. go to that church. So he didn't see that his eye was damaged. And so... So the book makes it very clear that, you know, this is not about, it's, it's not a Catholic church. 
Yeah. But mm-hmm. I just think the way it reads in the film, you know, I, I know not every religion that wears like the white, the, the collars. What do you call those? Um, the collar. Yeah. The, you just call the, it a collar, the clerical the Roman collar. collar. Yeah. The Roman collar is what the priest, the uh, Roman Catholic priest would say. Yeah. I know not everyone. I know that it doesn't mean you're Catholic to wear those. And I think they actually have like a history in the Presbyterian or like a different religion mm-hmm. complete or not religion, but a different, um, uh, denomination completely but it does read very mm-hmm. catholic when he's in kind of all black and he's got the white thing i tried to zoom in because they show the marquee for the church and it just says christian church so it doesn't say anything <coughs> explicitly catholic i mean i could go back maybe and really fine tooth comb go through the film and see if it is a catholic church but he's also hung up on it doesn't say suicide. like our lady of perpetual right exactly um <laughs> Um, you know, but his, his hangups about like suicide, that seems very Catholic to me. Uh, I mean, I know again, a lot of Christian faith has, uh, you know, tenets against suicide because you're God's property and how dare you, you know, desecrate God's property. He'll take you when he's ready. Okay. That's, you know, the, the idea behind the, the tenets against suicide, um, besides they want you working and contributing money to the church. Well, that's a whole other thing. Uh, <laughs> um, but I just think that, you know, I, I just think that you can't really dismiss when you, when you have a film, you've got Corey Haim, which again, you know, he and Feldman, that whole conversation about being abused by, you know, Hollywood elites, mm-hmm. quote unquote, like that, just again, it adds this whole other layer to the film but not necessarily um, common knowledge at the time, right? Exactly. Yeah. Again, I think this is one of yeah. those things where it's like where where the historical context, it's kind of all intersecting, you know, at a at a strange point because you kind of have like the satanic panic thing is starting to boil up, you know, that's gonna be really full-fledged very quickly. Um, you know, you have these stories starting to circulate, you have trials happening with these priests being accused of abuse, um, child sexual abuse, uh, you know, so it's just, I just think it's very interesting timing is all, uh, you know, when you step back and then the, the main protagonist of the film is, is a, is a priest, uh, this person that everybody's supposed to trust, everybody's supposed to like put their faith in and they're this violent monster you know and Mm -hmm. so we're going to kind of talk a little bit more about this when um you know spoiler alert uh dear listener but we're going to do a uh, a series on red riding hood and um you know how that story kind of gets depicted in horror films and these um the genesis of like folk of, of werewolf folk legends and you know, so I think that, you know, they they often read as sort of like, when you go back, I mean, especially as somebody who, you know, studies psychology and, you know, wants to be a psychologist and is working mm-hmm. actively towards that. When we look at folklore, when we look at stories about werewolves, when we look at stories about vampires and ghouls and, you know, other supernatural entities, you know, we find a lot of... um 
symptoms that could be contributed to what we now know are uh, are a variety of of um, disorders that can be diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And so I think you know werewolves often do kind of function as that sort of like you know charming. Uh, man that everybody it's like you know we we love this person we respect this person there's some you know they're this entity in town but underneath they're this violent violent monster and we obviously see mm-hmm. that play out with serial killer stuff and you know everybody go oh, he was so nice and oh my gosh he was the pastor at our church and, and he's got 20 bodies buried in the basement <laughs> <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. And, you know, the 70s and 80s were like a big highlight for that time. So I just have to wonder, you know, again, what what Stephen King was trying to say beyond like, you know, his main character being a child and having a disability, but also being the hero of the story, which sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of plays into what we were talking about earlier about, you know, the super crip, quote unquote, thing, uh, but also he, you know, is the hero, like, and he is the, he fights against the wolf and he wins. And when you think about, you know, kids in those positions fighting against adults, and you think about like, you know, when you go, you're talking about in the seventies and the eighties, going to like your family and saying this very well-respected person has hurt me that's a, a real tall order to fight against. And so giving that sort of contextually contextualizing that in a werewolf story, I don't know, I think is very possible. Again, I don't know if that's really what Stephen King was thinking, but it just coalesces in a really perfect cultural moment to be like, wow, when you look back and think about that film and watching this, thinking about that adds a whole other layer to what is otherwise mm-hmm. not a great, <laughs> it's not a great film. I don't think you, you know, in, in the, in the, in the breadth of like werewolf films fun, yeah. like you were saying earlier with the Goonies, but I think we can glean a little bit deeper meaning, you know, when you contextualize it at the, in the time period. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts? <laughs> I mean, the the stuff about disability, I think, is what I feel is the most pertinent if we're going to take anything away from it, just because yeah. it's so it it's like it's a plot point. It's the fact it's what you automatically like when in the film when uh, Marty goes out and shoots fireworks on his own you know, in his new, um, in his wheelchair, um, right. shoots off the fireworks. And then you're worried for him. It's like, you're simultaneously worried for him because like he's being chased by a monster and he's a child, but like the added layer of like, also because he can't run away. Right. And right. like, it's, it's that thing. It's the, it's the, it's the one thing I hate about like movies where the guy with glasses gets killed because someone stepped on his glasses and like right. that's always really terrifying. Like it happened in Jurassic Park. It happened in the Brendan Fraser mummy. Like anytime the guy with glasses, the glasses get stomped on, you know that he's going to be dead. So when with all of that, it's just like, okay, like that's the that's the stuff where I'm that's more interesting to me. Um it is an interesting thing at the time. I mean, like, yes, it's because you 
because like the clergy are supposed to be this safe space. So, you know, I totally get that. It's a, it's a perversion of the safe place of the clergy in the same way that like, you know, holiday horror is a perversion of like the good feelings and all of that. But he's also very like, he, he has that kind of like predatory nature because like we can't, you know, we as queer people also, (laughs) also kind of see the predatory nature that organized religion, specifically Christianity has. Um, And like in that scene where he, um, you know, the sister is there to pick up cans and he's like, you know, he's looming over her. It's, it's very, it's very predatory. It's very also, um, you know, the, the wolf is going to get you type of thing. Um, right. But yeah, so like I can see, I definitely can see how that is, but I, I feel like for me, it's more of a story about disability and thinking about um, the ways in which we think about disability, because I mean, it's, this is the conversation that we're still having now. I mean, if you look at the current, if you look at the currently uh, current critically acclaimed films, um, you have like that awful Sia movie, um, about autism. Um, and then on the other side of it, like you have Riz Ahmed in, um, the sound of metal, uh, which apparently is also getting some really great reviews, um, right. and like, and talking awards, but it's like, it's interesting. Cause it's like Riz Ahmed is definitely, you know, a hearing person. And I don't believe he's losing his hearing, but somehow has a more honest portrayal than like Sia talking, like trying to direct a movie about autism and having no autistic characters. (laughs) Right. No. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's sort of always the thing. And and that's why it's like, I found, you know, several disparate commentaries. Like, you know, there are people who are really taking Stephen King to task. Um, Some of them because they have, you know, they are, um, they have some sort of, you know, socially constructed mm-hmm. disability or they don't and are just trying to defend someone that does. And then on the other side, people are like, oh yeah, but look at this person and they're the hero or this person and they're, you know, but again, it kind of also floats into like, I think the super crypt thing, they're trying to talk about like the magical Negro and, and that kind of space in King's work. And, uh, you know, I think it just, it's all valid. It's all interesting to kind of discuss. You know, we see, we see ourselves however we can, you know, and if people, you mm-hmm. know, obviously we want to see expansion. We always want to see better uh, stories being told. We always want to see people who are living these realities tell the stories, uh, you know, but I think, I think Silver Bullet is sort of an interesting um, example you know, of Stephen King, I think doing a little better than usual. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or maybe with what's to come, you know, again, you're writing a story, you're writing about a character, um, you know, the, the films, the things that they get made, you know, are sometimes mm-hmm. out of your control. Um, but obviously, I mean, within the stand, you know, Nick, like, you know, it's like, you know, he wants to, is is, is it his burning wish to be able to talk and hear, you know, is that is that a, a real desire? That's kind of the question. That's what's at the root of it, you know, of whether or not people 
feel that they're truly missing out, you know, or is it just that society is cruel and society should meet people where they're at rather than the other way around. So I, you Mm -hmm. know, in in trying to kind of, you know, glean some sort of meaning (laughs) beyond like the werewolf uh, in, in silver bullet. I think that, 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 you know, that's, those are a couple places culturally we can, we can, we can chat about. So anyways, it was fun. <laughs> the werewolf looks awful. It looks like some kind of cat bear thing. Um, and which is kind of sad because American werewolf in London was out, you know, already. Mm-hmm. So you could have kind of a much better werewolf if they had wanted. I don't know what they were doing yeah. with their money. Uh, well, I think it was kind of a mix too. Cause um, De Laurentiis who produced this kept getting involved in the production. I think that's kind of one of the problems. You know, mm-hmm. Stephen King, I think, wanted to take like the Jaws approach of not really showing the the monster. Maybe it's not really a monster. You know, let's hold that reveal. But mm-hmm. um, you know, they is it a werewolf if you can't see it? Like, yeah, right, yeah. So the studio just kind of kept getting involved and you know, I think messing with things, producing. I think like one of the, I think the original director did part of the movie and then left. Uh, you know, they had one idea for the werewolf, but then it just ended up being, you know, the guy who plays the the reverend in a werewolf Smokey the Bear suit, <laughs> whatever that was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, so again, it's not I, I don't feel this is like a great film, certainly not a great werewolf film in the in the canon. But I think it brings up some very interesting, you know, cultural conversations. And when looking at the work of Stephen King, um, you know, one of the one of the tropes is often, you know, someone with some sort of disability having some magical property or mm-hmm. some something that quote unquote excuses their disability. Yeah. That's the conversation. So and we'll probably have that some more. We've got a couple other movies that we're gonna be talking about where this conversation may came can come up again. Uh, but you'll have to wait and find that out. Um, otherwise, I'm looking forward to the next few. We've got guests coming on for our next three episodes. It's going to be super fun. I think we've got a really cool lineup. And again, the movies, I I think are uh, I think it's going to be real fun. So kind of like this. I'm excited. We're going to be, we're going to be pulling some very interesting meaning out of. Uh, <laughs> out we're of two queens talking king. <laughs> That's right. And we'll be joined by some more queens and kings. Um, all right. Well, wow, I did a lot of talking. <sighs> Who knows what all that sounded like. But um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. Read the papers, y'all. And, uh, you know, if you can, find a copy of Cycle of the Werewolf. It is, it is superior to Silver Bullet, I think. It's very interesting. It's kind of a little bit more... Um, it's almost like 12 short stories that are interconnected, obviously, but you know, it sort of like goes through the different deaths of people and on the different days. And I don't know, it's just, it's a little more expansive, obviously, even though it's only 50 some pages, mm-hmm. it goes into a lot more detail than the film. So I do recommend it. And it's a quick read. Like I said, I read it again this morning in about an hour. So alrighty, Joe. Well, um, much love to you. I hope that you have a good night. Thank you. I hope you have a good night as well. And um, enjoy your uh, enjoy your white wine drunk. <laughs> I will. All right. Good night. 
Fright School is produced by Joshua Napier and Joe Farron. Our intro was edited by Davy Boy Productions. Our logo was designed by Jamie Channel Guzman. Episodes are edited and engineered by Joe Farron. Fright School is produced in terrifyingly beautiful San Diego, California. Geekscape Network.